Welcome to Fostering Solutions, a podcast that uplifts people and enterprises making positive impact in communities around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Foster. My guest today is Ayo, Ayo Dalgetty-Dean. She is joining me all the way from Guyana, South America. Welcome, Ayo. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's great, great having you here. And uh, as, as some of you may know, I was born in Guyana and um, immigrated to the U.S. And actually, Ayo and I went to the same school. She was a little bit behind me, a few years behind me, but um, we all went to the same school in, in Guyana. And I, I was actually in class with Ayo's brother, Mark. Hopefully, I'll get him on the sh- on on the podcast soon. So, welcome, welcome, welcome. So, how how are things going in Guyana now? What's the weather and everything? Well, it's rainy season, so um, the weather. Well, I like the rain, so the weather is okay for me. Of course, you're mostly home, so you know, no wet feet. Yeah. So yeah, the weather is good. Humid, hot, humid. That's what I like about Guyana. It's always hot. It just rain or sun. There's, there's no, yes, there are no seasons, right? Just heat and rain. But yes. it's, all, all, it's all good. So tell us about, tell the audience about yourself. Who is Ayo Dalgetty Dean? Good God. I, I was thinking about this and how can I answer this? So I'm a mother, I'm a wife. I own my own NGO. I'm currently a PhD candidate. Um, I feel like I'm a bit of lots of things at the moment. Um, (laughs) But you know, my passion is children and it's working with children and it's ensuring that children are safe. Right. I suppose that's why I have an NGO, you know, that works with children, essentially who are victims of severe trauma, Mm -hmm. i.e. rape or severe physical abuse. Wow. So that, that's a, um, that's a lot. You, you're, you wear a lot of hats. You wear a lot of hats. And were you always in this career? Cause I, I, I read that you had a financial analyst background. Oh, well, oh, okay. So this is the long story. <laughs> I did a degree in politics at the end of my degree. I was one of those people who were like, I don't know what I want to do. I remember having this conversation with my brother and he said, how many applications have you done? And I said, two. And he almost crashed his car. <laughs> You've done two? I was like, well, you know, I suppose I'm figuring out what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I thought as I didn't know what I wanted to do, I would just apply to all the graduate management programs while I figured it out. So that's what I did. I applied to them. I got in, well, I applied to two. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, I got into one of them. And so you spend basically six months training in two months financial management, two months commercial management, two months personal management, and then you specialize. And it just so happened at the end of the six months, I was actually better at financial management. Mm. Okay, so I'm better at this. Let me do that. Mm -hmm. So I went to streamline into financial management. And of course, if you're doing financial management, that means, you know, you need to do accounting. So I go, okay, then, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. You know, and I signed up and I started doing CIMA, which is the Chartered Institute of Management Accounts. So 
so I'm going through that and, you know, I'm going through life. But in the meanwhile, um, while at university, I'd always work with children, you know, and so my Saturday jobs and so forth was with children. Mm-hmm. Now, was this in London or Guyana? In London, in London, London. Okay. yes. So I, yeah, so, you know, I, I went along, I started doing the accounting exams. You know, I entered my role, I swapped companies, I became a finance analyst, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it because um, I was working in a marketing um, section of the company. So I was doing a lot of analyzing of marketing events. So I'm enjoying myself. And then one day I was like, what are you doing? It's not for you. And I just decided to stop. Okay. Okay. I stopped. Again, my brother almost had a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He was not coping with this, you know, this unstructured way I was behaving. I just stopped and I thought, okay, what it is you really want to do? And then I went back to that same kind of social work, working with children. Your passion. My passion, yes. So I registered with a few agencies and got called. I was the wild card, apparently for an organization called Family Welfare Association. It was called back then, it's now Family Action in the UK. Mm -hmm. And um, apparently in the interview, of course I don't recall saying this, but the manager told me afterwards, he asked me, why would you, um, do you think you would be a good manager? And apparently I said to him, well, you know, in this life, some people are born to be subordinates and some are born to be managers. And it just so happened I'm a manager. (laughs) it was that sentence you know that got me the job because he said before this was to work with um children and families affected by mental ill health to basically uh, manage a program to implement a manager program called building bridges program and he said they needed someone with the financial background because what they had was people family therapists nurses speech and language therapists but they could not um, do budgets. They couldn't run call centers, et cetera. So he thought seeing that I had a bit of exposure in that area, and then I had the financials, he said, wild card. He just thought, you know, I'd have to spend a lot of time with her and help to develop her, but let's go with this. And Smart I, man. <laughs> yes, I really did. It was like, you know, a doctor water. Absolutely, thoroughly enjoyed um, that project management job. But of course, I got a bit insecure because I was managing, as I said, speech and language therapists, nurses, doctors, because it was a children's center. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh no, I need to go back and do something. Right. So that's when I went back and I did family therapy. Mm-hmm. So I did that part-time for two years and did my postgrad in family therapy. Yes, and then, yeah, that kind of lead, lead on to other things. And then I re-migrated to Guyana with my husband and my little babies in tow. Um, took some time out, you know, imagined that I would be a full-time mom and thoroughly enjoy it. But it mm-hmm. seemed I was getting involved in all sorts. Because I remembered <laughs> conversation. my husband said to me, you know, c- can you just not involve me in your projects? He said, you know, you, out of your mouth say, you know, you want to be an at-home mom. You want to enjoy yourself, spend time with your children. And you're always involved in a project you're always doing some kind of charity work. I was like, am I really doing that? He was like, yes. So could you not involve me in your projects? I have a job. I was like, oh, okay. You know, and um, yes. And then basically I got invited to this call for collaboration 
mm. by the Child Protection Agency, um, asking for partnerships, you know, to work with children who are victims of rape. And 10 days later, I regist registered an NGO, and that was how Blossom Inc. was born. Wow. And how many years ago was that? That was five years ago. Five years ago. Wow. Years. Yes. November this year will be the sixth year. Yes. Wow. And, and for those of you listening, um, an NGO, a non-governmental organization in the States, we refer to them as nonprofits, nonprofit organizations, same thing. So it's just been five years. So, um, so you're, you're focusing on children who have been um, sadly raped or abused in some way. How prevalent is that kind of abuse, that kind of trauma in Guyana? Well, I think like everywhere else, you know, child sexual abuse, it is prevalent because for me, one case is one case too many. Right. No child should suffer child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, so if there's one, then it's one too many. Yes. So yes, it is something we're tackling and, you know, we have to work hard. We have to dig deep and we have to do the work. So in essence, at Blossom, we do the, what's called the forensic interview. So the police and the child protection officers would bring the child, if there's um, a report of child sexual abuse, they will bring the child to Blossom. We will conduct the forensic interview in the presence of the child protection officer and the police officer. We will then write up that statement. The interview is video recorded. We will then write up that statement and we will give it to the police. And the police will use that as part of their investigation. We then continue by doing the therapeutic support so we use the trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy as the model. So we work with the child through the trauma, and we also do victim advocacy and we do court support. So we will then go to court with the child. And throughout the whole process, we are supporting the family so that they can have kind of like a less traumatic experience dealing with the systems that they have to maneuver their way through. Yeah. So, so it seems like you're if the police call you, that means you must be everywhere. Where are, so you're, you provide so yeah, services so right all now, over the country? All over the country. Right now we're in regions one, two, four, seven, and 10. So we have five centers, about to have six. In about two weeks, we'll have six centers throughout the whole of Guyana. Um, obviously a lot more is needed. A lot more centers is needed because of how Guyana is situated. So mm -hmm. our center in Region 1 is in Mabaruma, but we still need to get to other areas. And of course, that has to be done by river, by mm -hmm. air, <laughs> you know. Um, Over land, it can take three, four hours to get to a different part of Region 1. Mm -hmm. So we need to set up satellite centers throughout Guyana as well. Wow, wow. Because of you know, Guyana, it's very there are parts of it that's um, quite remote. That are very remote, mm -hmm. and getting there is um, I'm sure your your transportation costs must be just exorbitant. It is out of this world. Yeah. Yes, that's one of our biggest challenges because sometimes we physically cannot get to the children, mm -hmm. or sometimes we can't get the children to us. You know, so you always have to work with people. You know, child protection is everybody's business. Yeah. But trying to get people to understand that it's also their business <laughs> to report, it's a difficult job, you know, but we have to rely on other agencies to help us. So are there other agencies like yours providing this kind of support 
for families? Well, there is one other agency that provides exactly this support, but the other agencies, like for instance, if we know education is going in on an outreach and there's a child that needs help, we will ask them, is it possible for you to bring out the child? Can you provide that support? Similarly, health, Ministry of Health, they will have outreaches going on. We would ask them, um, there's this Guyana Women Minors Association. The minors are key because they know how to maneuver Guyana's terrain. So if you can really get in contact with a responsible um, minor, that is half your job. Because they I didn't realize mine, there are women mine. There's a large percentage of women minors now. Women, I don't know how large, but there's a big percentage, yes, of women minors, yes. Interesting. So you know, you have to get to know people. You have to network. You have to collaborate, you know, because they're all very useful. Drivers as well, going in and out of the interior, they know the roads. They know how to find the places. If you can educate them and get them on side, you've done part of your role. That, that is really grassroots mobilization when you think about it. Yes. It's not just formal agencies like the Ministry of Health or, you know, all the different ministries, but it's really getting people on the ground. On the ground. You have a partner. Yes. Yeah, that's very, very innovative. Mm -hmm. So how, how much in demand are your services? Because it seems like you're, you're pretty busy. Like how many people do you serve? How have you seen the numbers? Um, change over the years, over the five, almost six years? So we've had an increase in reporting. Now that does not necessarily mean that there's an increase in child sexual abuse. We would have to gather the data for that. But of course, the more confident people get in the service, in the system, the more they will report. So the more they see successful prosecutions, the more they feel confident enough to report. So I think that is what we're seeing now because we advocated for and we got the special court, the sexual offenses court. As, awesome. a result, yes. so as a result, cases are not as backlogged as they used to be. You know, they're clearing the system slowly. So there are more cases being heard. So we're clearing the backlog. We're getting more successful prosecutions. You know, that alone, that in itself is going to, for me, is the single biggest um, thing that could happen in our field. Because it's a major visual. accomplishment. Yeah major accomplishment yes so you're not only practicing you're not only supporting families but you're also advocating absolutely you have so to it's getting new policy that's that's significant yes to make like you know really long-lasting change you need practice and policy you do you do so, so who's doing all this work io so <laughs> <laughs> Do, do, do you have a policy analyst, a, you know, a policy person? <laughs> no, we don't. You are weird. I, somehow I, I knew that that was going to be the answer. Yes, it's, it's about advocating. It's getting out there. So my role now, I'm not on the ground anymore. My role is fundraising. It's networking. It's collaborating. You know, it's meeting all the key policy people and the key change makers and it's advocating with them it's teaching them it's educating them mm -hmm. that it needs to happen you know and then you have to stick at it you have to dig deep and stick at it you have you know drip 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 you know and then you get in the end you get there yeah. you know so Guyana has a lot of good laws laws are not the issue it's the implementation implementation okay okay so we have to get people to implement 
you know, the yeah. solutions, find the solutions, find different ways of doing things, mm-hmm. you know, so, so that's my role. Yes. Okay. Awesome. And yeah, I, I, I know your team must be growing as well. Your the, the people who are actually providing direct service. Yes. The team is growing. It's now 17 of us. We started as two. Wow. Then it was four, you know, and then it jumped to like eight. Now we're at 17. But in addition, recently through a UNICEF funding, through UNICEF funding, they asked us to also do an extended services to the migrant population. So I don't know if you're aware, but Venezuela, of course, has a huge crisis. Right. So we're in Guyana, we have Venezuelan migrants pouring across our borders. And with that, children deserve a service. Wow. As a result, now we're also offering a service to the migrant community. You know, at the moment, we're just doing it in regions two and seven in a, let's say, in a good enough way where I have staff um, allocated to those roles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that will be, you know, we'll be able to roll that out to all the regions. But um, yes, it's, it's a big job. It's a big role. You know, and the migrants now coming in, it's more on the system and we have to deal with it. We have to work with them. So so what, so how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected this work? The work goes on. So whilst everyone is so-called working from home, of course, we are a key service. So we have to come out to do forensic interviews. So we come out and we do the forensic interviews. Our therapy, our trauma therapy, that I can say has now kind of swapped to psychosocial support. So it's a lot of um, work over the phone. So we're touching base with our clients. We're checking in to see that they're okay. We're, you know, if they're able to talk about any trauma or we're able to do bits and pieces of the trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing. So we might be able to do a little bit of trauma narration but it is incredibly difficult. We're all learning how to do therapy over the phone. You know, you're missing key elements, the body language. And of course, this is, we're working with children and there's no confidentiality at home. We don't know who is around. So sometimes you can tell the children do not want to speak or they can't, you know? And of course they do not have the ability to pick up the phone and call us. If something because they have wrong. to use someone else's phone. They have to use a parent's phone. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, so at the end of this pandemic or when the countries open up, I suspect we are going to be overwhelmed because then children will have access to safe adults, if you understand what I'm saying. Right, right, right. Someone they can tell, they yes. can tell what's going on. Because so unfortunately, I- it's children we're dealing with and people who abuse children is not a stranger in the street who will snatch them off the road. Unfortunately, it's people known to them. So it's happening. Very in, sad. In, yeah. Very sad. Yes. Very sad. Yeah. So yeah. I guess is there opportunity, but I'm sure internet is going to be an issue in some of the more exactly places. Cause even if you wanted to do like a video call, it's probably. It's patchy. It's patchy. And, you know, and a lot of our families don't have access to the internet, you know? So for those who do, we use that method. Otherwise, we have to call. 
you know, so our telephone call cost is going through the roof. Of course, people don't like to fund things like telephone calls. <laughs> but, you know, they don't see behind that, that it's actual work that we're doing. You know, they're like, oh, they're just on the telephone. Why is your telephone bill so high? <laughs> we're actually working. Yeah, that's your platform now. My platform now, yes. Yeah. It is. So, so you mentioned... Um, Abuse is all of our, we all have to uh, be advocates. Everybody's business, yes. Everybody's business. So what should we be looking for, um, looking for, as we, as we interact with children, what are some signs of abuse, of trauma, of something not right? What should we be looking for? Well, I mean, everyone knows their child, their children, mm-hmm. um, and teachers especially know children. But in essence, some of the things are, of course, things like nightmares or other sleep problems without an explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if all of a sudden this becomes an issue. Uh, if the child so like sees, if they're falling asleep in class or during an activity. That's or during, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's a sign for the teacher. Mm-hmm. At home, it would be nightmares, you know, um, other sleep problems without an explanation. You know, if, if parents notice, you yeah. know. And if teachers notice in the classroom, you know, if they seem distracted or distant at all times, mm. you know, when, mm, this is quite odd that this child is, is distant at this time. No, you know, it's, it's little things. It's a sudden change in eating habit. Is a child refusing to eat? You know, are they losing or gaining weight drastically? You know, are they having issues swallowing? You know, it's sudden mood swings, you know, are they all of a sudden in a rage? Are they fearful? Are they being insecure or are they being withdrawn? You know, and also children tend to leave clues, you know, clues that are likely to provoke a discussion about sexual issues. You know, there are little things that they drop, they might say, they might leave a book somewhere or they might use a word that you think, hold on, you know, mm. that's a little suspect, inappropriate or quite revealing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, you look at things like what are children writing, drawing, how are they playing? You know, they develop new and unusual fears. They refuse to talk about the secret, you know, with another adult or an older child. You know, they talk about a new older friend, you know, sudden, suddenly they have money or you're seeing toys and other gifts without a reason, mm-hmm. you know, that you don't know about. Um, they all of a sudden start to think about, you know, their body parts in a very like repulsive way, or they're thinking that they're dirty or that they're bad. You know, there are lots and lots of things. They exhibit adult-like behavior, sexual behaviors, their language, their knowledge. It seems inappropriate to what you know them to be. Right. right. You know, yeah. you know, there's some things going on. Yes. Yeah. You know, but you have to, my thing is you have to talk to your children, but actually, also, we have to have conversations with adults because what you will find, unfortunately, is a lot of adults did not have that conversation as children. So they as well, they do not they know. They're not how, equipped. Yeah. They're not equipped. Yeah. You know, I always say while everyone else is talking to the children, I will talk to the adults. Mm-hmm. And the adults are ill-equipped to talk to children. You know, some of them can't even comprehend for themselves. Yeah. You know, something as simple as sex is supposed to be pleasurable. A woman said to me, well, it's not supposed to hurt. Well, not really. No. 
you know, it's not supposed to be rough and uncaring. No, it is not supposed to be rough and uncaring. It's an act of love. You know, so you can imagine what her experiences of sex and lovemaking were like as a young person, maybe even as a child. So if that's your impression, what conversation is she likely to have with her child? So it's really working with the entire family, isn't it? You have to work with the entire family. You have to talk to the the adults. Because unfortunately, in the Guyana context, you know, auntie and uncle, everybody's auntie and uncle to show respect. So when a child says to their mother or their caregiver, auntie or uncle did this to me, stop lying on the adult. Because of course... Children tell lies. Adults don't, it appears, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. So you have to, adults tell lies, you know? You that, have that'll to listen to your children. children. Yeah. To your children, yeah. So it's a lot of work with it. It's a lot of work with the parents. And I suppose that's currently, today, that's my passion, working with the parents. You know, because in order to help the children, you have to work with the parents. You have to get them to believe. You have to get them to stop thinking that children are liars. I find this heartbreaking. Wow. wow. The amount of adults that will say children lie. Children rarely lie about child sexual abuse. They'll say it didn't happen when it did. Yeah. No? But it's not going to happen. And, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's very rare that they're going to make it up. Exactly. Out of the blue. Out of the blue, yeah. yes. They're more about protecting their parents. It's about protecting the loving auntie and uncle. It's about protecting the breadwinner. They understand what's going on there, yeah. you know? They do. And children have had so much input in schools, in lessons, you know, mm-hmm. from hearing conversations. In my experience, they tend to know that something is not right here, or especially in the, let's say, age nine and up, they know what's going on. The issue is their parents are not listening. Their parents are not paying attention. So that's why for me, it's so important to talk with the parents, with the adults. In small communities, you've got to talk to the leaders, you know, because they will know this is going on and they will turn a blind eye. It's not their business. You know, you have to say, well, actually, it is your business. And it's illegal for you to turn an eye, turn a blind eye. So what is, what is the reporting process like in Guyana? Like if someone suspects that a child is being abused, what, what do they- They can go to the police about? or they can go to the Child Care and Protection Agency. So the police or Child Care and Protection, okay. There's a hotline, you just call the hotline. Yes. You wanna go ahead and give that hotline? Which I should have at the top of my head, but let me get that quickly for you. As these days, everything is saved into your phone. Yeah. So, um, so the hotline number is 227-0979. Now the other thing I'm... 0979. Okay. And the other thing I must say, I must put this now. So I'm advocating strongly, and note I say very, very strongly, we need to have a three-digit number, a short code for the child. Oh, like a, like a yes, it's crazy. one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's also not one of my recent bugbears. So I am advocating with the telephone companies, with the Child Care and Protection Agency, um, with the Ministry of Social Protection to get us a three-digit number. That would be so much easier. I'm going to remember 227-0797. Tell me how you're that's, five years old. That's a lot to remember, yeah. 
we need a three digit code just like 911 411 wow. so yeah so i'm working on that hopefully fingers crossed by the that end would be a major a major win to get major yes major win so are, is there any like our vic because you mentioned that more people are getting comfortable with reporting has there been a stigma around victims of of child abuse or is there is stigma and i suspect there will always be stigma but yeah. we must continue the work yeah. you know we must continue working with the community we must continue working with adults with businesses to kind of to try to reduce the stigma because mm -hmm. you know there's so much shame attached to it you know and you know even adults now you know we have at our centers the adults bring their children and then they will report that they were sexually abused as children oh, no. and they're only now talking about it because of course they're now being exposed to a therapeutic environment they're now being exposed to the child only having to tell once you know and they're breaking down and it's 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 rough you know wow. another topic to touch on while we talk about adults breaking down it's also the people who are supposed to protect breaking down it's also the police uh -huh. officers it's also the social workers it's also the counselors wow but because remember they come from the same society so i know unfortunately a lot of people who are abused go into helping professions too because they want to help they want to help because they, they were there they can relate yeah. yes yes wow wow so yeah. So what what gives you hope? This is it, you know, this is really it's got to be really, you know, reading you and it really I'm sure <laughs> emotional when you're dealing with children impacted by abuse. What gives you hope through all it's this? Changes that I see. You know, we now have five years ago we didn't have sexual offenses courts. Mm -hmm. We have that now. Five years ago, we didn't have child advocacy centers to deal with the children. We have that now. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, we didn't have trauma-focused therapists. We have that now. Okay. So it's the systemic changes that I see happening that is giving me hope. That is you know, wonderful. The fact that we can go and train the police on forensic interviewing. We can go and talk to judges. Or we are not talk to. We are invited by the legal fraternity to come and talk to them about trauma and how to do trauma-sensitive work. You know, those are important awesome. things that gives you hope. You know, we were called in to do some training with judges on trauma and how to look at trauma in the courtroom. You know, there's funding for that now in the judiciary. So yeah, so there's lots of things to give you hope. That, that would give anyone hope to getting, you know, to get those systemic changes. That is, that's a major accomplishment. Yes. So what, you mentioned the um, as you went as you went along some of the challenges you encounter with transportation and just being able to reach your your telephone bills are are, um, are are huge. What are some challenges that are there any additional challenges you encounter, and what do you need to overcome those challenges? Well, it's capacity. Again, you know, the resources, the capacity, you know, we don't have enough trained staff. We don't have, you know, enough people in general to meet the, to meet the need. Right. You know, I have a lot more than 17 staff, mm -hmm. you know, because in essence, it's two per, per region, really. You know, and when you're dealing with, you know, 300 and something cases, 
you know, if you do the math, you will see that we are overwhelmed. So large caseloads. Yeah. Large caseloads, you know, and for instance, last Friday, I went into the office simply to sign checks. And this was like, the girl said to me, this is one of their typical days. I quickly run into the office with my mask, you know, to sign some checks and come out. I'm in the office, one forensic interview is booked. Emergency, the police then turns up with four. Wow. So that's five forensic interviews in one day. So we're in the office trying to figure out, okay, how do we manage this? Who will do it? Rain starts. And in the middle of the pandemic, a flood of oh my gosh. four other children turn up, two carers per, per case, the driver of the car, and everyone comes pouring into the office. And my staff is going, no, 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 no. You can't come in here. You can't come in here. Oh my gosh. The office is now packed. You know, you tend to the driver, you get back out to your minibus. You know, you can go and sit in your minibus. Who can go there? Open the windows, but the rain is coming in. And I'm thinking, oh my God. God, what's going Pandemic on? Pandemic flood. <laughs> you so much. If you know when rain pours in Guyana, it pours. It pours. <laughs> it's not it pours. Torrential rain. Exactly. Wow. I, I came home and I thought that was a really unsafe environment today. But that was a day in the life of our work. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. We, didn't, we couldn't anticipate that that would have happened. You know? So, yeah. So... You know, and how, how, I guess, yes. yeah. So how easy is, is it to get trained staff? I mean, is it, do they have to go to the university or is it? Yes, ideally for Blossom, ideally we would like university graduates. That's mm -hmm. our ideal. And then from that, we can train them as a, on a postgraduate level in the trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Now in the heart-rich areas, it's very difficult to get persons with a degree because of course if you live in regions one if you live in region seven most of the jobs are in georgetown which is in region four so and you know when you tend to leave home you're unlikely to go back you yeah. know so you don't find a lot of university level qualified people out in the regions so in that case it gets extremely difficult but you have to just um you know, in Guyana, they use this word back, backfill. You have to backfill the roles. Uh, Basically, you have a lot of continuous professional development, you know, to try to work with what you have, you know. And in that case, again, for our Region 1 staff, they do not have degrees, but they have experience as teachers, um, you know, unqualified teachers, and they have loads of community-based experience. Mm -hmm. We employ them. But we need to do continuous professional development, another big barrier. So we need staff to go up. To get to Region 1, we need to get on a flight, which then costs uh -huh. money. Then you need hotel accommodation. But in order to go and do hands-on training, you know, we have to do that. So we have to find the funding somehow so that at least once a month, you know, one of the senior workers can go up and hold the hands, you know, and show the staff how to do forensic interviews, how to do the therapy, so that it's done in a good enough way. Yeah, so, yeah, it's always, it's a constant, constant battle. Yeah, yeah I imagine it's balancing the, the budget with all those costs of yes. got to be a major, a major undertaking. So anyone who's listening out there would like to support Blossom and this um, really necessary work that they're doing, you know, 
I'm sure that Aya would gladly receive your your support. Very much so. <laughs> Absolutely. Any any parting words? Any last things you'd like to say? Well, just a reminder that you know, child protection is everyone's business, and that you know everyone needs to be on the lookout, especially now in this pandemic. You know, yeah. children are at home, and unfortunately, that means they're available to be abused. They're at risk. They're at higher risk. They are at higher risk, you know, and unfortunately, parents do have to go out. Some parents are key workers. Some parents just, unfortunately, they cannot afford to stay home. You know, the parents with the stalls in the markets, you know, who is selling foods, the ones with small businesses, people are noticing your children are at home. Neighbors are noticing. Auntie and uncle around the corner is noticing, you know? So we need to have conversations with the children about being safe and how to keep themselves safe. And we need to have conversations with adults that we are watching. Mm -hmm. We are watching. You know, we have to be more community-minded. You know, and people look out. For people who know that children are not being supervised in a good enough way, they have to look out. You know, um, it, it'll be easy for me to sit here and judge, but I'm long past that game of sitting and judging parents who who need to find food to eat, you know? Let's just, yeah. all, let's just all help, you know? Let's just all help and support. Let's all try to keep the children safe together. Yeah, yeah it, takes, it takes a village, right? It takes right. a village, really. To raise a child, yes. To raise a child, to take care of the, our heritage, to take care of the next generation. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Ayo. It, it was a pleasure chatting with you. The, the time just ran away from us. Uh, yes. <laughs> thank you so much. Continue the great work. Uh, I was hoping to get to Guyana this year with the pandemic and everything. Ah, I don't know. Yep. But um, yeah, our, our links chapter will be supporting you again. Um, so I'll get that check to you as soon as we um, reconvene, figure out how to get that to you. But uh, keep up the great work. And um, I look forward to seeing you soon. Yes, and thank you for having me on. And the whole of Blossom Star thanks you. Thank you, Ayo Dalgetty Dean, for joining me on this episode of Fostering Solutions. Ayo is the founder and uh, leader of Blossom, an NGO in Georgetown, Guyana. They are all about empowering families severely affected by trauma. Thank you so much for your efforts in Guyana. And I look forward to seeing you and, and supporting your organization in the years to come. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us today on Fostering Solutions. Until next time, be blessed.